Welcome to the Strong Enough Podcast, where we talk about the challenges and celebrate the triumphs of people just like you. I'm your host, Claudia. Today's guest is going to share how she endured a toxic work environment that led to a chronic illness diagnosis. She now has her own business where she helps people manage their stress. Please help me welcome Avery Thatcher. Avery, how are you today? I am doing very well. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me. I am super excited to talk about what we're going to talk about today without giving away any hints to the audience just yet. But I find often that we have been talking recently about kind of the mind-body connection and how experiences or environments can lead us into some pretty significant physical issues. So I'm, I'm excited. And, and I say that, you know, um, somewhat sarcastically, because it, it's not cool that you had to go through this, but I'm excited for you to tell your story of triumph. So before we get there, why don't you tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Absolutely. So I started my career as a registered nurse working in the ICU. And what I noticed was that a lot of the reasons why people found themselves in the ICU were because of illnesses and diseases linked to chronic stress. I myself, as a highly sensitive, high achiever, noticed a lot of the traits in my patients were things that I was living in in myself. And so there was like alarm bells going off and I was like, oh, I should do something about this. But yeah, so then I started a business in that area back in 2015. It's been growing, but I was still working as a registered nurse at the time. And yeah, then I started working at a registered nurse in a very toxic ICU. And that's when everything changed for me. So let's start there because, you know, being a nurse is difficult enough. And then I would say being a nurse in an ICU is probably even more stressful. So how much worse did it make it that now we're also in a toxic work environment on top of everything else? It was the most stressful time of my life. I've never experienced that degree of the team fighting each other. I actually had a doctor look me in the eye in front of the entire team and the parents of because I was in a pediatric ICU at the time. And he said like, okay, now I'll dumb this down so the nurse can understand. And I was like, oh, hell no, you did not just say that out loud. And that is that really sums up the environment The one of the doctors even said to me, oh, you know, like in five years, your nursing job will be obsolete. You'll be out of a job because we'll replace you with a robot. And I'm like, dude. I don't think so, but it's just that kind of vibe was happening all the time. So yeah, I was really starting to notice emotional burnout. I was noticing physical burnout. There was a lot of things that were piling up. And so I made the decision to only work night shifts for a couple of months because then you avoid some of the politics, Mm -hmm. but unfortunately it didn't quite save me from all of it. So my mother was a nurse. I say was, she's retired now. She's still, she's still here. Um, But, you know, she had some run-ins with doctors as well. And what I always realized from her experiences was, and no offense to doctors here, you people are amazing and we need you. um, But nurses are the ones that keep everything going. 
So did you find that pretty often with doctors that, that they were a little bit more belittling or was it this particular one? What was your experience? So it was really this particular one. Usually in the ICs that I've worked in, and I've worked in a number of them, it is very much a team environment. Mm -hmm. And if the doctors uh, were any part of like a transport team, for example, if there's like a helicopter that goes to pick up a really sick patient and suddenly there's not enough room to bring everybody back home, the doctor gets left behind. And so they know that because they can do mm -hmm. their job over a phone with the people that they trust giving them the information. So typically in the past, the team was very level. And so if I went up to one of the doctors and I said, hey, I'm really worried about this person, they'll be like, oh, show me why, tell me why, rather than being like, mm -hmm. ugh, they'll be fine. And then half an hour later, we're trying to revive them. Now, I'm going to say this for the people who are listening versus watching. You are younger, youngish, young. <laughs> you are attractive. So do you feel like that ever set you back and, and contributed to sometimes the way people treated you in a negative way? So... Potentially, definitely potentially, but I noticed this behavior happening across the board and it didn't matter what kind of experience that you had. Cause I, I know that I, I'm blessed with good genes because I'm almost 40 and you wouldn't necessarily know it to look at me. I wasn't going to guess that. Not at all. Yeah, it's pretty, people are like, <laughs> oh really? But um, yeah, I, I would say it happened across the board, but for sure, I think being in a newer environment, because I wasn't one of the original nurses that these doctors may have been working with, even though I had more experience than a lot of them did, but it was just discounted because I was just a nurse. Which has to be extremely frustrating. <sighs> Were other nurses experiencing this as well? Mm -hmm, very much so. And the sad thing is that a lot of them had given up. They're just like, yeah, well, that's the culture. I can't change it. Nobody respects me here. It's okay. I just can't change it. And I'm like, then why, what's happening? But then there was this other group of nurses that were trying to give the right kind of education to the nurses to be able to advocate for themselves and to be able to speak up. But the thing is, if the leadership team isn't on board, mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. How frustrating is that? And hello to the to the kitty cat making yeah, an appearance today. Appearance. Hi there. How frustrating is that to, you know, first off, be in this environment that is so toxic, but then to have a group of people who have essentially given up. It's really difficult to watch, especially because my job as an ICU nurse has nothing to do with my ego, mm -hmm. has nothing to do with anybody else's ego. It's about this human that we are responsible for, that them and their family are, are in the worst moments of their life. So it just, from a like existential perspective, it drove me bonkers because mm -hmm. people are thinking about the wrong thing. Yes. So I know you said you had some health issues and, and they were exacerbated by this. What was the final straw for you? What was, what was the situation or the day, you know, that made you say, no more, no more night shift, no more any of this. So I wish I could say that that was my choice, but unfortunately my body made the decision for me. So I had 
uh, low blood pressure for a while. I had some other health issues here and there, but they were little and they were manageable. I could still work full-time or more than full-time 12 hour shift work. But then I was coming off the night shift Christmas morning, 2018. And I remember the date so well because I had just delivered Christmas presents to this little kiddo, but the charge nurse looked me in the eyes and she's like, whoa, you do not look well. I'm going to mark you off as sick for tonight. Feel better. And I was like, great. So I went home, slept for 20 hours, slept for 20 hours the next day, day after that, and just kept sleeping. And so I went to a doctor and she's just like, hey, what's that on your neck? And I was like, what? I had grown a massive thyroid mass mm-hmm. in about three months. And so it was about two and a half fish to three inches. And that's like popped out of nowhere. And so I had fatigue that was off the charts. I had pain that would move between different joints and it was unpredictable. I always felt like I had the flu, mm-hmm. which during COVID has been really interesting because they're like, do you feel like you have the flu? And I'm like, mm, not the flu symptoms that you're looking for, but yeah. Yes, uh, but no, but yes. yes, but no, but kind of. So yeah, there was just a number of different things that all happened at once. And so I got um, like a number of tests done and t- tons of scary diagnoses sort of thrown out there. I had the thyroid mass removed with half my thyroid and the other half as a high achiever. So it's keeping up for me, which is beautiful. Mm-hmm. But yeah, eventually about a year in, I got diagnosed with a chronic illness and disability and was told I will never be able to work as a nurse in a hospital ever again. There's no physical way that that'll be possible. And so at the beginning of the story, there's all this part, which I'm telling you right now, my first name was Heather. I grew up my entire life as Heather. That was my name. And I started to go through a lot of PTSD Mm -hmm. dreams and symptoms. And there was a lot of complex PTSD that I'd been carrying for ages. But then especially when the pandemic hit, I was like, "What, what do I do? I'm an ICU nurse. I should be in the ICU right now. I had dreams of my colleagues and friends saying, Heather, where are you? We need you. Where are you? And I was just stuck. And I was like, there's nothing that I can do to help in this scenario. And so there was this big journey of grief and understanding who I really was at the core and not attached to my job. And then I realized that I'm not Heather anymore that's really not who I am. I can never go back to be that person. So I searched baby name blogs for a while and Avery was the only name that jumped out at me. And once I decided to make that change, I felt at home in my body. My dreams stopped. When I heard reports about the pandemic and how it's affecting hospitals, I didn't feel sick. I knew that that was not my story anymore. That was a lot. And, and we have a lot to unpack now. I mean, I just learned that you haven't been Avery that long. Mm-hmm. Being a nurse, you know, is about other people. Like you said, it's you're there to serve somebody else. And I know you just talked about it, but what have you ever had a feeling of helplessness before, like you had initially during the pandemic, when you couldn't go out and help people as a nurse? So the only time that I've really experienced that degree of helplessness was since my health deteriorated so quickly. 
because the tiniest amount of movement could fatigue me for hours. That being said, prior to that, there were tons of moments, especially in childhood, in some adolescent experiences where I also did feel helpless. And that's where some of that complex trauma has been built up from. But like, I'm, I'm definitely not happy that I've been through all of that experience, but I know that all of that created the foundation for me to be able to rise above what I'm struggling with currently and still, and to be able to figure it out. How has it been for you to figure it out with a chronic illness? I know for me, I was very active and kind of a, a doer. And so when I was first diagnosed with a chronic illness, it was horrible because I felt like I kind of like what you said, you know, I wasn't me anymore. And, and I had to find that again. So what was that like for you to be somebody who was a go-getter to suddenly have to rely on your body telling you when you could and couldn't do something? It was such a fight to begin with because you'll have the people telling you, hey, you need to pace, you need to listen to your body, you need to plan things out and slow things down. And you're just like, okay, yeah. And so then I slowed down for me, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. but you know, still a little bit of a wild pace because I'm a high achiever. So it just like really, it wasn't pretty, but I started to like dive more into the business that I had started building before I got sick and started to do more research into this space and the stress and trauma healing and burnout and all the things. And I came to this realization that the stages of grief are different for people that have survived trauma Mm. because anger is such an unsafe emotion for people that have a trauma history or complex trauma history. And so usually it's, you know, anger is the second step. You just get angry and then you move past it. But typically in trauma cases, we kind of push through anger because we don't get angry. Nothing, like if you're trying to upset me, you're going to have to let me know. I never really get upset. Mm -hmm. That kind of vibe protects us from getting angry. But I remember the moment where I allowed myself to feel the anger over my chronic illness and the diagnosis and what it had taken from me. So part of my regular daily activity, because I also used to be very active. Mm-hmm. Um, so now I get to walk for two and a half minutes on the treadmill before I go to bed. And that is a win friends. Mm-hmm. That is a huge win. Mm-hmm. So I usually walk for two and a half minutes on the treadmill and just do a little bit of journaling while I do that. And I was just journaling out a little bit and was just talking to uh, my chronic illness. So I have myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is a mouthful. So I call her Emmy. Mm-hmm. And so that's when I have conversations mm-hmm. with her, that's what we chat. So I was just chatting with Emmy and, I, and then all of a sudden I started to feel this anger and I was like, okay, this is a safe space. Let's let her out. So I started writing out the anger and then all of a sudden I just felt this switch hit. And then instead of me fighting with that part of me, I felt compassion for it. And then I, oh, the ugly crying that happened. It was just like everywhere. And I couldn't see, it was unsafe to walk. And I was like, maybe I should get off the treadmill. And then I got off the treadmill and I was like in a pile on the floor, unable to stand as two years of repressed grief just exploded out. And it was from that moment forward that I started to work with 
Avery and Emmy rather than against it trying to be who I thought I wanted to be who I used to be so that anger switch changed everything what has it been like for you in dealing with an invisible chronic illness and for those who don't know what that is you know you look fine um I look fine. And that's what people always say. Well, you look fine. You don't look sick. And they don't understand what's actually going on under the surface. I feel like that adds a whole additional layer of complication. You know, if I had a peg leg, it would be a little bit easier because people, you know, I mean, I wouldn't be able to wear the shoes that I love to wear, um, but Mm -hmm. people would see what was wrong with me and accept it. How has it been for you to have something that people can't see and to get them to accept? So I think it depends on the person. So if it's somebody that I do want to have that kind of understanding for, then I'll work harder at it. But if it's somebody on the street that's um, getting upset at me for sitting on one of the chairs that's typically reserved for people with a disability, I'll just say like, hey, you never know what somebody's carrying. I have a disability. I belong here. And if they continue to talk, just put my headphones in and be like, I just, I do not care. Mm-hmm. It's not worth it. But for family or friends or important people in my life, um, it's really just about helping them see the changes mm-hmm. and being patient with both of us. Because I know for me, it can be very frustrating to have someone be like, oh, you look great. You look great today. You must be feeling fine. And I'm just like, actually, my flu symptoms have never been so bad. But thanks for saying. So it was just a lot of gentle education at the beginning and tons of patience on my part because nobody really understands it until you can show them what to start to look for, I guess. Because I feel like a lot of invisibility or invisible disabilities aren't actually invisible once you know what you're looking for. That, that is interesting. And, you know, when you said that you have to be patient, does that frustrate you at all? Because why are we the ones left to explain ourselves to people who don't understand? So, I understand where you're coming from, for sure. And I've been there too, when I'm just like, but Truly me getting frustrated at that takes away more of my energy. Mm -hmm. So I choose, I choose to release it. Was that easy at the beginning? No, not at all. It was probably 18 months or so in the making, but finally it was just like, it's not worth it for my energy. And so some of my family members, not worth it for my energy still. And that's okay. Mm -hmm. They don't have to understand me. Exactly. And I think you're totally right. You know, I try to look at it as an opportunity to educate other people. And yes, it is frustrating, but, you know, I also have a mouthful of a disease, interstitial cystitis. So it's just, Mm. I see, but I, I try to, to at least educate people about it. Like, here's what's wrong with me. Here's what it means, whether they get it or not, you know, is not on me. But I think that's such a healthier way that you have and that I learned to have in dealing with the people who don't understand because it can be so frustrating. Mm -hmm. Do you attribute your illness to 
the the difficult work that you did and the environment that you had to be in for so long? So it's tricky because of course there's not a lot of science to back mm. anything like that up, but there is science to back up stressful triggers that trigger the genes that then unleash diseases. You can look at um, people that develop type two diabetes often there is some kind of stressful or viral trigger that brings that on. Mm -hmm. So for me, absolutely. I 100% believe that it was that environment because like ICUs, absolutely. I've cried buckets of times in different mm -hmm. ICUs. I have never cried as much in that ICU for things that are not related to patient care. So it was just so stressful. Absolutely, it triggered it. And just one last question on that environment, and then we're going to move on to some, some happier things and talk about where you are now. Were there red flags in the beginning that this was not going to be a healthy place for you to work, or did it just kind of you're in it and then it starts to be toxic? Uh, unfortunately, yes, there were red flags from the beginning, but there wasn't another option in my line of work in that city. So if that's where I wanted to work, which I did, mm -hmm. uh, I had to figure it out. Or so I told myself, mm -hmm. we always have options. And so I just chose to tell myself I didn't have an option. So that is another lesson that I carry forward from developing this illness. So let's talk about what you are doing now. Thanks you. Yeah, I'm super excited about it all. Uh, so I work with people in two different ways. One, I help people with the stress management and the burnout prevention to help keep them out of the ICU. Mm -hmm. And so I do that also in a really balanced way. So for me, going to an hour and a half long yoga class, that would woo, wipe me out completely wiped me out. Mm -hmm. So I got my yoga teacher training and now I teach 15 minute yoga classes. So that way you can get little bits of stress relief and yoga throughout the day. So it works really well for people like me with a chronic illness or a disability, but it also works really well for those super high achievers that it's hard to carve out that full mm -hmm. hour and a half for yoga. Uh, there's the meditations and all kinds of other practices in that space as well. And then I also work with people one-on-one -on -one when they've also had a significant loss of identity like I did to help them really find out who they are without their roles being attached to that. So you said that you had started working on this before you got sick. So how, or before you were diagnosed, how, how was it for you to really lean into this after you were sick and this was kind of like, okay, here's my path, here's what I'm doing. Was that scary? Was it exciting? Was it all of the above? So I think because of the, unfortunately, this was not the first struggle that had happened. And you, if it was one of my first five, I maybe would have been like, Ugh, but okay, fine, let's figure this out. Whereas this time it was kind of just, um, objective apathy I was like okay it is let's keep going this path now keep walking this way so I am very excited about the work and it is more aligned now than it was before and I don't think it would have been if I didn't experience what I've had to go through but yeah it's very exciting now 
And what made you passionate about it and doing this work to begin with? Why did stress management really resonate with you? Great question. So two main reasons. One, because of the number of patients that I saw come into the ICU with illnesses linked to chronic stress. And the other was because, uh, like, I always joked that there was this invisible neon sign above my nursing desk. And on the night shifts, there would be like rounds. People would just come by to get coached, get some thoughts, get some feedback. And they just, everybody seemed to gravitate towards me. I cannot take public transit without learning somebody's life story, their current struggles, without even knowing their name. So I just, I have this invisible neon mm-hmm. sign. So it just grew into a passion because it's just who I'm meant to be. I'm laughing because I have also had that similar neon sign above me. I have heard stories that people really should just keep to themselves or their therapist or their priest, uh, but they feel comfortable telling it to me. So I get it. Uh, I would love for you to talk about stress management. And obviously we don't want to give away all your tips and tricks, but what is the biggest issue that you see with people that causes them to have stress issues? Great question. So the biggest issue that I see with people that causes them to have these issues with their body is that they do not process stress. We are good at processing and experiencing our joyful emotions, but the more challenging ones, we're just like, eh, push through, keep going, soldier on. So taking the time to slow down and process that stress is one of the most important things that we can do because our body, there's three different stages to stress. The first is the stage of alarm. And that's the like, holy shit, there's a bear coming at me moment where your body's just like, Ugh! and you want to run away. So you're going to do the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn response in that case. Mm -hmm. And so that's what our body was designed for. That's what our stress switch was designed to handle a little quick burst of stress and then you turn it off. But our body doesn't know the difference between a bear running at us and finances and work stress and family stress and living through a pandemic stress and all of the things. So we moved from that quick state of alarm into the stage of resistance. And so this is where our body's like able to manage okay, it's supporting okay, and it's keeping the stress damage at bay. And so in this phase is where we really need to focus in on turning that stress switch off, which I can give you lots of strategies for in a minute. And so when we do that, then we're going to keep the stress hormones at a level that our body can manage. If we don't process that stress, then we move into the stage of exhaustion. And this is where our body kind of gives out on certain things. Our digestion goes sideways. We can't think clearly. We get that terrible brain fog. We're not sleeping very well because we have so much cortisol in our system that wakes us up at 3.30 in the morning. And it's saying like, get started with your day, friend. So it's all of these things in that stage of exhaustion that we can prevent if we know how to turn off that stress switch. So let's talk about that. How do we, how do we know when we need to turn it off and then how do we turn it off? So if you are a human living in this current world, you need to learn how to turn off your stress switch. If we're just being frank and honest here. So every single person needs to know how to do this. And so our stress switch is really quite simple. 
So we have two different sides of our nervous system that we can't control. It's called the autonomic nervous system. So we've got the sympathetic side, that's the fight, flight, freezer, fawn, kind of. Freezer, fawn are a little bit weird, and we can talk about those in a sec. So the sympathetic side is the fight or flight side, mm-hmm. and that's when our heart is beating fast, we're breathing really quick, our eyes are like nice and dilated, so we can take in everything from our environment. Also in this phase, though, if you think about it, if you're running away from a bear, contemplating complex problems, solving difficult things, you know, like that's not a priority. Mm -hmm. So you lose that access to that part of your brain. Your instincts are prioritized at that point. So then on the opposite side, the parasympathetic nervous system side, when the switch is off, that's the rest and digest, the healing side. We get lots of blood flow to our digestion. So we can do a lot of uh, healing to our body. We get access to that higher level thinking brain, all of the good things. And then also our breathing is slow. So what the research has showed us, which is really cool because it's actually very easy to do, is one of the easiest ways to turn off that stress switch is to slow down our breathing so that it's five and a half seconds on the inhale, five and a half seconds on the exhale. And so by doing that for five breaths, you are actually triggering your stress switch to turn off. Now the uh, the freeze or fawn experiences happen when that switch gets stuck in the middle. You're not in either side of those nervous systems fully. And so that's where we can either get the deer in the headlights, can't move, can't breathe, can't do anything. Or when we want to placate absolutely everything around us, control everything around us to be able to get things back to a safe space. But yeah, even in the freeze or fawn response, controlling your breathing, slowing that down is key to getting back into that part of your body where you can have control over things. So if you do that five and a half second breathing five times a day, it's really easy to continue to lower those stress hormones. And I know that five times a day sounds like a lot, especially for busy people. But if you do it when you first get up in the morning before Mm -hmm. each meal and before you go to bed, that's five. And I mean, you have to breathe anyway. So it's it's not like you're having to do something extra with your time. And it literally takes 50 seconds to do. So you can do it. Do you feel like is it like meditation where you kind of have to be in a closed off quiet space to do it? Or is it one of those things like, Hey, I'm brushing my teeth. Maybe that's not the best example. Hey, I'm driving to work. Um, you know, I can, I can do my breathing right now. It can be done anywhere. So back at the beginning of the pandemic, when everybody was hoarding their toilet paper, I went to the grocery store just to pick up a couple little things. Cause we were like out of I don't know, almond milk. I can't remember, but I was going for like a small amount of things and it was just wild. Mm -hmm. I could feel my stress response ramping up just because people were behaving. They're such a a scared space, really. So my own stress response started to get triggered. So I was just walking around the grocery store, breathing, my five, five, five breathing. And it was fine. It really helped. And then it started to not be enough. And that's when we can get into my next strategy of what if the breathing is not enough. Perfect. So, I mean, you teed it up, so we might as well just roll right into that. So we're doing our breathing, but we're still feeling stuck in that fight or flight, freeze or fawn. What do we need to do now? So the next piece that I recommend you do is using a self-compassion script. Because we're really good at offering compassion and support to people around us, but We've deprioritized ourselves so much that we wouldn't even give up the seat on the bus for ourselves. We wouldn't hold the door open for ourselves. 
So we need to train that back into us. And the easiest way that I found to do that is with a script. And so the script itself has three main components. And the first one is validation. Because if a friend came up to you stressed out about something, you wouldn't be like, eh, you're fine, buck up. You're going to be great. You would say, oh, that's so hard. Like here, come and give me a hug. It'll be mm -hmm. okay. We'll figure this out together. So validating those experiences is such an important part of the process. And then what you need to do is move into the space where you're having compassion for yourself when you show like, yeah, you know, this does suck. This is really rough. This is scary. People are behaving weird. They're running around. The frozen food aisle is completely empty <laughs> along with the toilet paper. So mm -hmm, it's just mm -hmm. like giving yourself the really calm understanding in that space. And then the last piece is you round it out with a plan. And so when I was getting my thyroid mass tested to see if it was cancerous, there was um, this massive needle that they kept jabbing into the side of my neck to like keep testing it. And I was like, this is fun. Um, so I'm lying there on the table and I'm using a self-compassion script for myself. Yes, I know this is scary. You don't know what the results are gonna be, but you're here, you're gonna get the results. You've done a lot of work to be able to maintain calm in difficult situations, to practice those things. You can do this. You can breathe through this pain for one more breath. And you can breathe through this pain for one more breath. And just kept myself in that moment, saying that self, those things to me over and over, just to keep myself calm. And before I knew it, it was over and I could get up and keep going. So, you know, a lot of people preach self-care and there are those people out there though, who want to make you feel guilty anytime you try to do something for yourself. So will you talk about the difference between self-compassion and selfish? So self-compassion helps you really support the reason why you're here, your purpose. Being selfish goes against that. So it's all about clarity here. So if you know what is your reason to be here, what is your mission in your life? What are you working towards? And you don't have to be an entrepreneur to be able to have something like this. You can have purpose and mission in any kind of situation. So becoming clear on your chosen purpose and what you want to work towards is really important because then when you think about what you can do to support your ability to achieve that, that can be really helpful. So one of the biggest moments for me was when I redefined what high achieving meant, mm -hmm. because I used to associate my worth with what I could accomplish in a day, how many things I could check off, how many people I could help. And that came from a lot of childhood experiences where, mm -hmm. um, you know, I would get a 96% on the test and my parents would lovingly say, okay, well, where's the other 4%? because it was never enough. It was always something more that I could do. And it wasn't that they meant that in a harmful way, but it still creates that pattern of when you're finished doing something, you're like, oh no, there's still more that I can do. Mm -hmm. So rewriting the high achieving definition to not be tied to accomplishments, but to be tied to my ability to have an impact beyond my immediate circle. Mm -hmm. And so in order to do that, I have to be not comatose. So that means that I have to care for myself. How hard do you think it is 
to rewrite that script. You know, we, we hear about people, I mean, all of us have some type of baggage from our childhood. And like you said, it wasn't what your parents, you know, were saying was necessarily negative in that moment, but what it created in you was that need or desire to just go, go, go. How hard is it for us to reset that? So it's actually not as hard as you think it might be. What we need to do is look back and find out where are these thoughts coming from? Because my trauma onion, the layers of my trauma will be different than yours and different Mm -hmm. than the person listening right now. So we need to understand our self-talk origin story. Because once we can dive into that, then you're able to start to rewrite the patterns and be able to create that change. So absolutely, it does take work, but like a couple weeks worth of work. It's not necessarily years. So if we get through our self-compassion list and we're still struggling, what should we do? then it's time to not look for a band-aid it's time to look for the cause so the natural enemy of anybody's health is taking on too much so when we look back at what have you said yes to what are you putting on yourself what pressures are you putting on yourself to be able to do enough things what kind of expectations do you have for yourself? Where do those come from? So looking at the cause of where all of this pressure is coming from, that is definitely the next step. How hard is that for some people to do? Because I, I feel like a lot of people are kind of those yes people. Um, they don't want to disappoint somebody else. They don't want to let somebody down or that's how they're feeling. So how tough is it for them to really make that look and identify what's going on so it can be tough if you don't have support systems built in and so by support systems i don't necessarily mean having people in your corner although that does help but to have strategies that work for you because in the age of mindfulness and meditation being this like quick fix it's mm-hmm. going to make you feel great uh it could actually be really dangerous for some people So depending on which state of your trauma healing and which phase of PTSD recovery you're in, it can trigger a lot for you and set you back quite a bit. So it's learning about which practices can work out really well for you. And that's why uh, one of the many reasons why I decided to become a yoga teacher was because it's such a great embodiment practice that allows you to notice thoughts in small amounts while also grounding yourself in the present reality. Because if you do too much meditation or things like that, if you're not prepared for it or depending on your stress level in your body and how easily that's triggered, um, it can just, yeah, it can really set you off and trigger a lot. Now for somebody like me, I have said it before, so I will say it again. Yoga has not always been my friend because I feel like a loser when I try to do it. Um, I'm great at the balancing stuff, but the stretching stuff, uh, I'm like the tin man. So I would love to hear how you work with people like me so that I can still get benefit both 
mentally and physically? So that's one of the big problems with yoga is if you're not flexing McBenderson in the corner, then you feel like you're missing something. And flexibility is only one aspect of yoga. And it's, I'm not flexible at all, especially now with my disability that's caused me to be so much more sedentary. I've lost a lot of the flexibility that I used to have. So it's not so much about becoming a pretzel, but it's about releasing the stored pockets of emotion in your body through movement. And so manning those poses, so that way they fit you mm-hmm. is the most important part. So there are poses which I do with a chair because that is the safest way for me to do it for my body. For anybody listening, if there is somebody in your yoga class pushing on your body, trying to get you to stretch into something more, let them know that you're not looking for adjustments because it's supposed to be adapted to fit your body. One of the initial uh, creators of yoga is BKS Iyengar way back in the day. And he invented all of the yoga props to fit poses to your body. It's not about trying to make it so that in forward fold, you can see the back of your kneecaps. It's about protecting your lower back. So maybe that means that you need a chair or a table in front of you to be able to do it properly. So yeah, when you're looking at the benefits of yoga, it's not about trying to be someone you're not. It's about accepting who you are right now and giving yourself the compassion you need to be able to support yourself in that practice. I love that. So I'll try it again. It also sounds very similar to trauma-informed where it's really Mm -hmm. about doing the movement that is comfortable for you and to the level that you feel good about or you feel okay with. Exactly. And some poses because of their design will be very triggering for a lot of people, depending on what they've been through. So looking for a yoga teacher that understands that and can give lots of modifications and options for you without singling you out. Because if somebody's in a yoga mm-hmm. class saying like, hey, Avery, here's your, your modification. Hey, Avery, here's your <laughs> modification. You're going to be like, oh, I'm never coming here again. So right. making sure that they know how to do that in a way that supports the class. Excellent. We are going to take a little turn here before I let you go. And we're going to talk about tattoos. I love tattoos, as you know, you can't see any of my tattoos today because I have on long sleeves, but I happen to notice that that you have some artwork as well. I would love to hear the most meaningful tattoo that you have and why. So the most meaningful tattoo that I have is a raven tattoo on my back that um, disappears into smoke. So there... Uh, in my Druid culture as a Scottish human, uh, power animals are a very important part of our experience. And so a raven is one of my power animals and they deliver messages through smoke. So having my raven protector always there for me, always watching my back and sending me the messages through the smoke signals is such a meaningful thing for me to carry. Love it, love it. What do we have in mind for future tattoos? 
I am getting an entire sleeve done uh, starting 10-ish days from now. Um, I'm very excited about it. So it's going to be incorporating a number of different things that have been meaningful to me, like um, the yin and yang symbol, as mm -hmm. I get more into Taoism and learning more about that philosophy of life. Um, and then also with the Celtic heritage, the labyrinth mm -hmm. path, um, I'm getting that tattooed on my forearm as well. Because then wherever I go, if I need a moment to be like, ground myself, I'll have it right there. I just trace it on my forearm. I love it. Now, how many sessions is this going to take? Do you know already or what do you have planned? So she said it depends on how well I sit. So I said challenge accepted. So we will see. <laughs> how long did your back take? My back I did in one sitting and with color on top of the black. It was spicy, not gonna <laughs> lie. But uh, yeah, it was about six hours. That's not bad. So yeah. I feel like you are a badass and that you <laughs> are going to sit like a rock and get it done. Yep. Uh, is there any part of your arm that you're more nervous about than another pain wise, um, spicy wise? So I've, I have uh, another half sleeve on this side and then mm -hmm. I've got a forearm on this side. And so the, the spiciest part so far was up during, like up in the tendons, sort of mm -hmm. in the middle of the elbow. Um, but my other deltoid arm piece, mm -hmm. it was like the tattoo artist was digging for my bones. He was pushing <laughs> in so hard. So I feel like after that, it's going to be fine. Yeah. So it sounds like you're, you're ready to go there. And I agree there, there was something about kind of the inner arm and up that was a little hmm, spicy, as mm -hmm. you say, I like it. I may also be worried about the inside of my upper arm because I am the most ticklish human you've ever met. So I will likely be giggling my face off because I bet you it'll tickle. Well, it's better than crying. So yes, yes I, so true. I think it's going to be great. Avery, where can people find you? So if they want to learn about stress management, if they want to knock out some 15 minute yoga, or if they want you to read messages from the smoke on your back, where can they find you? They can go to becomingavery.com. I'm also the same on Instagram. So it's Instagram at becomingavery. And then I have the flow state membership where people can join at different levels to do those little bite-sized bits of stress management. And it sounds like they do not have to be local to you to do that. No, not at all. It is all virtual. So from the comfort of your home, from my yoga space to yours. Perfect. Avery, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you sharing your health journey and some amazing stress management tips that I know we can all use. Well, thank you so much, Claudia. I'm so grateful to be here. I really hope you guys enjoyed my conversation with Avery as much as I did. I truly appreciate all the tips she gave us for stress management and how we can get out of that fight or flight zone. So remember, until next week, you are strong enough and you are worth it. Thank you for listening to the Strong Enough Podcast. You can find us on your favorite podcast platform by searching Strong Enough. And on YouTube, we're on the Spear Talk channel. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Strong Enough Pod. If you have suggestions for an upcoming episode or a future guest, please reach out at strongenoughpod at gmail.com. 
Remember, you are worth it.